0: Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, host of our ongoing conversation about innovation, disruption, and how technology is changing everything around us. This is a milestone edition of RBC Disruptors. It's our 50th episode. And for this conversation, we thought rather than talking about technology or platforms, we'd talk about you, about the audience, and how in this age of automation, audiences actually still matter, uh, matter maybe more than ever go to a sporting event, you see the power of audiences, but we know how media and entertainment companies are wrestling with how to maintain both a live audience and a digital audience. And there's no one wrestling with this more probably than the film industry. How do you keep people coming back to the theater when we can all stay at home and watch movies on our favorite device? Today, live from RBC Waterpark Place, we'll talk to two leaders in the film industry, Cameron Bailey and Joanna Vicente—they're the co-heads of the Toronto International Film Festival. If you've been to TIFF, you're one of 500,000 people who go to the festival. But how do they keep people coming back the rest of the year? Here's our conversation. So, Cameron Bailey, Joanna Vicente, welcome to RBC Disruptors. It's great to great to have you here. Thank you. If any of you got to... Uh, who, who went to TIFF last month here? Great. You guys did, too. You. you can put your hands up. We were there. Yeah. <laughs> you were there. <laughs> you, can't de- you can't deny it. Um, let me start, as we like to start all of our conversations here, with some... Uh, we call them snappers, just quick questions to get the conversation going. I won't ask you your favorite film with TIFF, because that's like asking your favorite kid. <laughs> you may have one, but you're not allowed to say it on stage. Correct. Um, maybe... <laughs> Maybe share with us um, your favorite moment from uh, from from this year's uh, TIFF. Joanna, can I can I start with you?
1: So this was my first festival on this side of things. I used to be a producer. I had many films at the festival, so I had a lot of favorite moments. I have to say, you know. Like introducing Hustlers and bringing a female filmmaker, which every time I did that, we really got a lot of applause from the audience because we had so many of the galas directed by women. And then just bringing that level of talent, like the excitement, like it was just the audiences. You could feel the energy in the room yeah. when um, Laureen, the filmmaker comes in and then brings you know Jennifer Lopez and and uh, Constance Wu so that was definitely where you 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 really felt uh, the the energy was one of uh my favorite
0: moments, yes. Cameron, favorite uh, favorite moment? Uh, that was a great moment,
2: and I'm glad that we were able to do that, and, and Joanna was there for, uh, for that as well. You know, we have uh, about 240 films in the festival. There was one that I really liked. We have a section called Platform, which is our competitive section. At the festival, we opened it this year with a film called Rocks from the UK. It's got no stars in it, uh, so, you know, no J-Lo, no, no Cardi B or anything like that, but it's just a group of, of young girls, uh, high school girls uh, from London, true... Uh, Um, a story based on their real experiences of growing up, of coming from immigrant families, where sometimes your your life is precarious, you have to go to high school and present a certain face, and then at home you've got a very difficult life. Sometimes it's that story. They all came. The director Sarah Gavron was there as the world premiere. There were about twenty uh, girls and women on the stage who were involved in making the film, either on screen or behind it. Um, we uh, engage our next wave group, which is a group of high schoolers in Toronto from lots of different backgrounds all over the city. They were helping to present the film. It was just this incredible coming together of youth, and it really was inspiring, because the festival can sometimes feel like it's for people who are a little bit older, have the, the means to attend, but this was really young people invading the festival, and it was really exciting to see.
0: Maybe talk a bit more about that, because we're, we're, we're here to look at audience, and how audiences in a way are disrupting the, uh, the disruptors, so Cameron, let me stay with you on, the, on that point of kind of your favorite audience moment from, from this year's TIFF. Um, God, there are so many.
2: Um, let me see. Uh, midnight Madness is probably one of the craziest audiences that we have. And if you have, haven't had that uh, opportunity, please make sure you do it next time you go to the festival. These films start at 11.59 every night. And uh, it's at the Ryerson Theater, 1,200 people, packed house in most cases. And we had one film that I made sure to to show up for at the end of a long day. I, I went around to Ryerson at midnight. And the programmer, Peter Kaplowski had found this film from Uganda The very first time we had a Midnight Madness film uh, from Uganda, and these guys in Uganda make these super low-budget films, and by low-budget I mean less than $1,000 to make a movie. (laughs) And they just gather their friends together. Nobody gets paid, but they do it for fun. And what they also do is when they make these crazy B-movie action films, they narrate them live. And so there's a guy on stage as the movie's playing, and he's talking it up. He's kind of like being the hype man to the movie (laughs) as he's watching it. And we're all part of that. And then they, they um, Skyped into Uganda, into Kampala, uh, at the end of the film. And it was morning there. And so the, the people who had made the film there were also talking back to the audience in Toronto. It was just a perfect uh, audience moment for me.
0: I wonder if I can get your thoughts uh, a bit on the history of TIFF. It's, it, it's known generally as the People's Festival. There's lots of great glitzy festivals around the world, but none quite like TIFF. And uh, I've, I've been going for many years. It didn't necessarily start out that way, but it's grown mm-hmm. phenomenally. Give us a bit of insight, Cameron, uh, on the, the evolution of the People's Festival, especially with sure. the audience in mind. How did TIFF get to be what it is yeah. today.
2: So it was started by three guys uh, who used to attend the Cannes Film Festival uh, just about every year. They were in the film industry: um, Dusty Cole, uh, Bill Marshall, and Hank Vanderkolk. And they liked what they saw in Cannes. But Cannes is a very ritzy festival. It's just for the industry. It's not a public festival at all. But they liked the excitement. They liked the, the fact of, that you could go and discover new directors and new films there. They wanted to bring that back to toronto but to make it toronto and so that meant that it had to be more of a people's festival it had to be for the public and they they managed to bring those two things together uh started in 1976 and it was hard the uh one of the the great stories is one of the, the the most influential film critics in toronto at the time heard that the Toronto Film Festival was happening and took his vacation during the (laughs) festival. He said, I don't need to worry about this. I'm going up north to the cottage or something. Uh, And it really wasn't until American critics started coming up, people like Roger Ebert, who was famously one of the biggest and earliest supporters of our festival, began to write about it and to write about it for the U.S. audience. And then suddenly, uh, Hollywood began to pay attention. And we did tributes to people like uh, Warren Beatty and Martin uh, Scorsese in the early years. And then that attracted more more momentum. The films were good. And over time, we began to find films that would go on to greater success. Uh, The uh, Prince's Bride premiered at our festival in 1987. And then suddenly everybody began to hear about our festival. Um, Chariots of Fire really blew up out of Toronto and and went on to great success. And then American Beauty and then later on Slumdog Millionaire, King's Speech, Green Book last year, that success where films launch in Toronto, audiences discover them here, and then suddenly everyone's talking about them, and they win awards, including the Oscar. That really was what made Toronto what it is.
0: And and TIFF has this almost magical ability as a predictor or indicator of of, uh, film success. I think the the number is $3 billion of revenue has been generated off of Tim TIFF films, whereas uh, at Cannes it's uh, 800 million and and, and change. Same with awards, TIFF films win more Oscars than I think any other other festival. Joanna, what is it about the TIFF model that allows it to be that kind of indicator?
1: Well, what I think is really special about TIFF, and having been a producer who brought many films here, is that it's really unique in their It has absolutely the best public audiences. It's really a public festival. But at the same time, you also have the industry in force here, and you have the press. You really have the three most important stakeholders for a film festival. A lot of the other film festivals are industry festivals. so. Even though there's buzz around the film, you don't really get the sense of how is the film going to resonate with audiences. So, which is part of like why a lot of studios, distributors and smaller distributors will choose TIFF as the place to launch the film because it really will get them an idea on how is it going to work.
2: I think one of the things that's important to remember is that movies are still very mysterious, even to the people who make them, right? They make these movies, they make them with a group of people, it can be hundreds of people, but they don't know how they're going to play until they play them in front of a, a public audience. And Toronto is not just a great place to do that because audiences have a, a history of actually identifying those real successes. Uh, but it's a, an audience that's not out to hate your movie right? Uh, unlike in some other festivals, industry festivals like Cannes, the French in Cannes are famous for being very harsh on movies and uh, in the old theaters that, you know, the chairs used to snap up when people <laughs> were just leaving the theater because they didn't like it. That doesn't happen at our festival because the audience comes into the theater generously they want to actually see if you can uh, move them if you can impress them and uh, so you know films play well here the audience is interested and engaged with the movies and I think that's what people want to come here to find out
0: we started off this conversation uh, with reference to streaming which is clearly the big disruptor in uh, in this space but uh, also takes us away from the audience or a theater being together what are your thoughts on the streaming revolution? And I'll start with you, Cameron, in terms of what it is doing to films, but also to film audiences and sure. how we might have to adjust to
2: that. The first thing I'd say is that this is... I I see this in a kind of historical context, part of a number of different paradigm shifts that have happened over decades and decades. When television was first introduced in the late 40s and early 50s in North America, the movie industry thought, oh, my God, we're doomed, right? And they went to great lengths to try to maintain the film audience. When home video came about in the 1980s with the VHS, uh, same thing. The the film industry thought, oh, my God, we're doomed, and tried to come up with a a new way of, of engaging that audience. Streaming is just another way for people to to watch stories on screen. Uh, They're doing it in large numbers, but that was the same with television. That was the same with VHS videos. I think the film industry will survive. I think it'll have to adapt, of course, but it will definitely survive. And I think people want more than just the, the film on a screen of whatever size, this size or your phone size or, you know, a 30 foot movie screen. They want the social experience of watching something and immersing themselves in a story with other people, laughing together, crying together, being scared together. That's a really powerful human desire, I think. I don't think that goes away.
0: Yeah, those emotions are are contagious Mm -hmm. and you have to be with with people. Joanna, how are you kind of thinking through the streaming challenge to live film audiences?
1: So, you know, what's interesting about streaming? So I think, like, people are watching 80% of feature films at home, um, either on TV or on their laptops. Um, Mm. Less on their mobile devices just because usually, I think, up to 20 minutes Um, People are spending a lot of time watching video, but anything above 20 minutes usually they would go to the bigger screen. But what it means for us having a theater or five uh, theaters is how do we compel audiences to come to TIFF to really want to experience those unique, Moments and and watch films with us. How do we enhance and make it more of an experience?
0: And related to that, a question from our Facebook audience about the rise of streaming. And why does the theater formula still still work? Maybe Cameron, we can stay with you for that.
2: I think part of it's sensory. Uh, I think no matter how good your home theater is, it's not as good as what we have. Sorry. (laughs) Um, you know, just being in front of this massive thirty-foot screen, surround sound, the rumble of the bass—just it's like when you go to a concert. It's just a better sound system. You know, you can access the music anytime you want on your phone, but you don't feel it the same way. You don't feel films the same way unless you're in a really good movie theater, and we have that. And then the other thing is the social experience, because if we don't share our experiences, then what are they really? Right? If, if you experience a great meal or a great piece of music and nobody that you care about felt the same thing, then what do you have? You have something that's very isolating, right? And so sharing those experiences
0: is so important. That's a beautiful insight. If we don't share our experiences, they're not really experiences. Joanna, what, uh, what in the theater formula is still, is still working in, in, in your mind?
1: Well, I think this immersion, I feel like we are constantly distracted. We are constantly multitasking. We are, you know, I see myself, you know, I'm, I'm a news junkie watching the news and at the same time I'm doing email and I'm like. You know, cooking or doing something else. Like, we, we constantly do, like, we can't really be paying attention. You can't watch a film that way. You can't, like, really get immersed and, 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 and feel empathy for the characters and, and, and go into a journey if you are doing ten other things. So I think when we do, when we're not distracted, when we actually surrender to the experience, mm-hmm. something happens. And, and, and those are really powerful moments. And, and I think mm. any of us have those moments uh, where we saw a film that, like, um, made something shift yeah. or, or changed a little, like, how we see things.
2: I think that long-term effect that you talk about is really important. Whenever anything major happens in our lives, one of the first things we say is, my God, that was like a movie. <laughs> because you see a car accident, you've seen it in movies. You've seen you know, a knockdown, drag-out fight between two people who love each other. You've seen that in movies. You know, Most of our big experiences, the most dramatic things that we experience, we have memories of them from watching them in movies. And that, and so those reference points become really important to us because they shape how we live in the world.
0: Mm. Cameron, you've been a student of film for, for years, as you said earlier. How, how do you see filmmaking evolving going into the 2020s given all these technologies and the platforms that are are changing sure i mean i think in terms of
2: audiences there's a number of different strands happening at the same time and they intersect in some ways so blockbuster movies are still a thing and i think will continue to be a major factor for a long time and that's still continuing and it'll be marvel movies for the next uh, you know little while and then it'll be something else at the same time those big communal experiences are intersected with very personal, what we call long-tail experiences, where you have people who are devoted fans of just one thing that seems to be niche. It might be they're into, you know, anime from the 1980s only. Do you know what I mean? Or they, they might be into, you know, contemporary French horror movies or romantic comedies from India or whatever it might be. Uh, that's also something that, that intersects with that massive blockbuster common experience. And then there are people choosing uh, and curating their own kind of world of content. What they're going to choose is their, their movie orbit, if you want to call it that, um, from all of the different things that are available. As you said, there are thousands and thousands of movies available on each of your phones as soon as you want. As soon as this is over, you can start watching a movie if you want. Um, but we we have to we have to get past the challenge of the choice, right? There's just, there's too much choice. And that's where curation really matters. And that's what we try to offer at TIFF, not just at the festival, but all year round, is, you know, choosing what we think are some of the best things and a range of them. And then you can, you know, select from within that, within that.
0: And how are you wrestling with the challenge of curation given all the data? I mean, when you say curation, I immediately think of the Netflix recommendation engine, right. which is a... Uh, a curatorial machine. as its flaws. As its <laughs> I fl- Absolutely, I see those flaws. How do you balance just your own instincts and the instincts of your t- team when you see something up against those powerful machines and all the data that powers them.
2: I, mean, I think for us, our programming team for the festivals is 21 people and year round it's smaller than that but still a range of people so I think the first thing is you hire people who have a range of experience. If you've got groupthink when it comes to curation you're lost. You have to have a range of people in terms of ages, generations, background, taste, all of those things so that you have a much wider perspective on what audiences will like. And then you have to listen to actual audiences. So we try to put our programmers and our our team in front of audiences as often as possible, make sure they're hearing them, whether they are people who are coming in for one screening or they're patrons who've been with us for 30 years.
0: So when you say put them in front of audiences, what, well, what do you mean by Well,
2: introduce them? the films, be there for the Q&As, uh, be part of surveys and feedback sessions. Uh, we've got member meetups where we actually have our staff sit with our TIFF members and listen to how they're reacting to films. All of those things are ways of staying current with what our audiences are looking for. And that, I think, is the combination of listening to your audience and actually having a range of people curating that's better than any recommendation engine, as far as I know.
0: So I I can't let an audience question on Game of Thrones pass by. Uh, I'll I'll let either or both of you field this. Is there an ability to bring long-form films with complex plots, like Game of Thrones, to the theater?
1: Well, I think it's something we're going to be exploring, is like... Are there other non film activities that are related to storytelling that we can bring into the light box? Um so that we kind of again also break a little bit our own uh, constraints of showing feature films that are one and a half to two and a half hours? Uh can we actually hash you know, create that communal experience of people watching, you know, a full season of something? Mm-hmm. Uh if it's the a filmmaker there there we feel uh makes sense for.
2: Yeah, I think I think this also speaks to the idea of of uh, event uh, watching. And Game of Thrones was certainly an event this year with the end of this, the, the show. Um, we're always interested in that. We've done things in the past where, you know, the, the, I think the launch of season two of Stranger Things, we presented on the big screen at the light box. We had the entire Raptors finals in our movie theater on the, uh, on the big screen for audiences for, <laughs> for free, <laughs> which was amazing. Uh, so things like that where we know that there's a lot of uh, audience interest and you're kind of capturing a moment in time, we definitely want to always do.
0: I wonder if we can go back to the point or stay with the point about data and how that is driving decisions in filmmaking. Uh, one of our earlier guests on Disruptors was uh, Alan Lau from, from Wattpad, uh, who you know well. And it's, it's, it's fascinating what they're trying to do with script development, uh, using uh, sort of crowdsourcing for it, but also testing, using data, uh, and trying to convince studios that this is maybe a better way of uh, developing scripts. Uh, I can certainly see the power of that, but also the flaws. And wondering how you both think about the evolution of data-driven decision-making with just that instinctive, instinctual human decision-making, the gut. Uh, And is there a way of bringing them together? Do they work together, or do they... Uh, clash. Maybe Cameron, I can start yeah, with I, you. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I'm not afraid of it. I think it's, it's an interesting new development, but it's building on things that have gone before. People have been studying stories for probably thousands of years. Um, and there's a famous book Joseph, by Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which looks at narrative generally through hundreds of years previously. And that, that study of narrative was the model for Star Wars. So if you watch Star Wars and what Luke goes through in that movie, he's following an ancient tradition of stories. Mm -hmm. And Wattpad is essentially just doing that. What are the common elements? In stories, what works with audiences, what do we want to see, what is the danger, what are the risks, at what point do stories need to change and shift to keep the audience interested, that's something we've always been doing. Thankfully, I think, we don't have the final answers. We don't know what the perfect story formula is, and if we did, I think we just need to all just sort of turn in.
1: And, you know, there's, (laughs) there's so many formulaic films with amazing actors that totally flop, and sometimes it's just like there's no spark. There's no chemistry. There's, n- there's not that thing that makes people fall in love with something, um, and 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 that's the hard part. And and I don't know.
0: Mm. Yeah, we, we've got unfortunately a minute left this is a, a great conversation and you both talked a lot about diversity uh, and TIFF is extraordinary in terms of what it is doing to champion diversity among filmmakers, the audience uh, as you said is kind of uh, uh, heterogeneous on, on on its own but Joanna I wonder if you can share with us uh, your, your thoughts on championing uh, women in film, the initiative you've just launched, what's uh, just tell us briefly about it and what's, what's your ambition for it
1: so the initiative actually was launched in 2017, Shatter Journey, and was really, as you know, I was looking at the whole proposal of coming to TIFF, that was definitely something that I felt very passionate about. I feel like, um, as a producer, being a woman producer, that it impacted the kinds of films that I made, the, the people that I hired, I had, you know, a lot of... Uh, cinematographers and production designers that were women. um, It's a lot harder for women to get their films made. Um, Why is that? Film school, 50-50. You know, 50% of the students are women. And then, you know, it's just harder to, I guess, get financing, get teams, get the the first film made. And then when you get the first film made, then Men, like, usually, on average, like, they take one and a half years to get to their second film. Women take between five and seven years. Um, what happens? I don't know. Life, it just, it's, it's harder. Maybe we, you know, it's been harder for women to, to get people on board, to say, I have an idea, just follow me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and get financiers to, to trust. So there's a lot of work that needs to be, done. I think that the pipeline is there that a lot of women with a lot of talent, we see that like starting at film school. So how do we work with the industry? How do we give those opportunities for women to feel more confident, more validated with their projects so that they can get made? Um, So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing. We share our journey.
0: I think we need to have you back for future disruptors on, on, on that particular topic, because there's lots to explore there. I wonder if you could both just wrap up with a quick thought for all of us sort of dealing with audiences near or far. As we enter the 2020s with technology more powerful, with more data than we've ever had, what should we be really thinking about? Cameron, I'll start with you, in terms of keeping and developing that audience magic. I think I
2: like that it's complicated. Um, Later this fall, we will have an exclusive run of the new Martin Scorsese film, The Irishman. Lightbox will be be the only place in Toronto that you can see it this is a film that in some ways was driven by data, it's a Netflix film so that's that's the most data driven content company that we know of right now Uh, but it's also the product of a master filmmaker working with some of the greatest actors in American cinema history so there's a long history to the making of this movie but it is up to the minute in that it's a Netflix film and we're showing it theatrically in the Lightbox, so that to me is where we are right now, there's all of these different strands being woven together. It's complicated, but the result is there's a great movie to see at the end of it.
0: Joanna, what should we be thinking about for audience?
1: I think it's, I think you need to take risks um, because it's the biggest payoff is when we take risks, is when we challenge audiences to get a little bit out of their comfort zone. And that's where I feel transformation can happen. Um, So I hope that, you know, sometimes data can make us safe um, to just push a little bit the envelope.
0: Cameron and Joanna, thank you for joining us here today. And congratulations on all you've done at TIFF.
2: Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to RBC Disruptors. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love you to subscribe using your favorite podcast platform and submit a rating. That really helps us reach a wider audience. You can also take part in the conversation. By using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Today's episode was produced by Kyle Fulton. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks for listening.